Hi, everyone, and welcome to The Angle Nook, a show about some of history's greatest stories. As always, I'm your host, Logan East. On today's episode, I'm joined by a very special guest, but more on that in a moment. Today, we're discussing one of the most fascinating religious traditions in American history that most people know next to nothing about. In fact, I would wager that many Americans are more likely to associate it with oatmeal than with Christianity. Or, if better versed in history, they might think of the founding of Pennsylvania with a policy of pacifism. I am, of course, speaking of Quakerism. Quakers, or as they are more properly called, Friends, have long history in America going back to the nation's founding and reaching down to the present. Of all religious traditions, they have had influence on our society punching well above their numbers, even counting two U.S. presidents. My guest today is perhaps the best qualified person to help us discover the roots, practices, influences, and ongoing development of Quakerism. In fact, Tom Hamm is arguably the leading historian of American Quakerism. His long career has seen the publication of several pivotal studies on Quakerism, including The Transformation of American Quakerism, God's Government Begun, and The Quakers in America. In addition to his writing, Dr. Ham has taught at Earlham College in Indiana, where he has also served as curator for the college's extensive Quaker collection. Perhaps most importantly, Tom has been a lifelong friend himself. A link to his work will be in the description below. Tom, I'm so glad to have you here. How are you? So far, so good. Always good. glad to answer some questions about friends. <laughs> well, good. Um, so, Tom, we're here today basically to inform our audience about where the Quakers came from, where they are, and where they're going. Um, so if we could just start out a bit, even about yourself, um, would you mind telling us, one, how you got interested in history, how you got interested in Quaker history, and, and how those things kind of came together for you? As far back as I can remember, I have always been interested in history. Even when I was a small child, when other little boys would be out running around in the yard playing ball, I was happier inside listening to older relatives tell stories about uh, what we called the olden days. When I got into school, history was always my favorite subject. And uh, almost as far back as I can remember, I thought I would want to be a history teacher of some kind. When I got into junior high and high school, however, that was a concern because just about all of the history teachers I knew were athletic coaches of some kind, and I was definitely not an athlete. Fortunately, I discovered there was this wonderful thing called college teaching where you could teach history and you didn't have to be an athletic coach. So I knew what I wanted to do. I became interested in Quaker history because I am a lifelong Quaker. I have Quaker ancestors that go back to the beginnings of Quakerism. And that was something that had always interested me. When I began my graduate work in history at Indiana University in Bloomington, I originally assumed I'd do something about the history of the anti-slavery movement in the United States. But I did a paper uh, for a course in American religious history on how Quakerism had changed in the late 19th century. And my professor told me this was something that he thought other historians would find interesting and that 
no one had really dealt with. So that study eventually became my first book, The Transformation of American Quakerism. <laughs> I mean, that's a very natural uh, combination of interests there. Um, and later, I hope for us to get into that, because I would agree with your advisor that uh, even beyond academic historians, a lot of Americans have no idea about the transformation of Quakerism. Uh, I think also I read that you have a, an abiding interest in genealogy. Does that factor into your interest at all? It's a good combination because uh, almost always when I am doing my Quaker historical research, I run across somebody who's related either to me or to my wife. Uh, <laughs> my wife also has a number of Quaker ancestors. We figured out we're related 24 different ways, although uh, no more closely than fifth cousins twice removed. Well, I will tell you that in South Louisiana, that family interconnection is also unusually common. Uh, but good. So going back to, well, your, your very distant ancestors at the roots, uh, let's start with just talking about what is Quakerism? Where does it come from? What are its roots? Well, Quakerism is a movement that rose in England in the 1640s and 1650s. And if you know anything about English history, you know that in the 1640s and 1650s, you have a time of social, political, and religious upheaval. There's a civil war going on that results in the temporary overthrow of the monarchy. The legally established Church of England breaks down you have an explosion of radical printing and activism that has at least some people in England questioning almost every established social belief and practice. One of the results of that is the appearance of dozens of new religious movements uh, some of which, like the Baptists or Presbyterians, eventually become what we think of as mainline denominations today. But there are also dozens of smaller radical movements with names like diggers or ranchers or levelers or fifth monarchists or brownists or familists or my favorite, the Muggletonians, uh, <laughs> none of which proved to be especially long lived the one of these small radical movements that did survive down to the present day is the one that originally called itself the Children of the Light, later Friends of the Light, ultimately the Religious Society of Friends or Quakers. The label Friends comes from the Gospel of John, where Jesus tells his followers that he'll no longer call them servants, because uh, they have become his friends and he will call them his friends. So being friends of Jesus, friends of Christ, seemed to be a pretty good thing for the early Quaker movement. The label Quaker, in contrast, was originally an insulting nickname that was given to them by the opponents of friends and it came out of a widespread perception that the friends, when they were in their meetings for worship, 
would shake and quake and even roll around on the floor and foam at the mouth. As often happens with insulting nicknames, however, uh, friends began to use it under many circumstances. And today there are some friends who avoid the label Quakers, but most use it interchangeably with friends. Now, at the heart of the early Quaker movement was a young man from the Midlands of England, uh, Leicestershire. His name was George Fox. He was born in 1624, so he's coming of age in the midst of the English Revolution of the 1640s. He came from a family with Puritan leanings. And by his own account, George Fox was a godly youth. When other young people in his village were out uh, bowling at nine pins or dancing around maypoles on the village green, George Fox's idea of a good time was to go into the village pub and warn the men drinking there that they should give up their evil ways. Now, George Fox was very much aware of all of the contending religious groups around him. And the one thing that these religious groups had in common was usually that they claimed to be the only true Christian church. And if you're not one of us, then you're going to be damned to everlasting hellfire. Since George Fox uh, did not want to be damned to everlasting hellfire, as a, even a teenager, around the age of 19 or 20, he set off on a kind of religious pilgrimage, traveling around southern England, seeking out people who had reputations for piety and godliness, hoping that there was someone who could show him what the true Christian church was. But as Fox later recorded in his autobiography, there were none that did speak to my condition. So in 1646, 1647, he wanders up into the north of England, onto the moors of Yorkshire and Lancashire, places where even today there are still probably more sheep than people. <laughs> and it was in that lonely situation that George Fox had a series of experiences. He called them openings. Today, we'd probably be more likely to label them revelations. They were spiritual experiences where Fox was convinced that God had spoken directly to him, that God was teaching him directly. And these experiences would be the foundation of the Quaker movement. One of Fox's openings was that all people have within them a certain divine light, the light of Christ inwardly revealed. And this is true of people all over the world. If people are obedient to that inward light, that light of Christ within them, then it will lead them to lives of goodness and ultimately to salvation. 
And this is true not only of uh, self-professed Christians, but people who have never even heard of Christ or have even uh, had any exposure to the Bible. If they are obedient to that light within them, then ultimately they will be acceptable to God. In contrast, if you ignore the light, if you do not follow its leadings, then you risk that it ultimately will be extinguished and then you will be damned. And George Fox and early friends definitely believe in the possibility of damnation if you are not faithful to the light. Second one of Fox's revelations that's closely connected to the first one is the idea of direct revelation. George Fox argues that revelations from God, direct communication between God and human beings, did not cease when the last book of the Bible was written. Fox and early friends argue that the same Holy Spirit that inspired the prophets, that inspired the writers of the various books of the Bible, continues to inspire people today. And that leads to Fox's uh, third uh, opening or significant revelation, which is going to shape the nature of Quaker worship. Since all people have the light of Christ within them, and all people can be directly inspired by God, then it is possible that anyone can be a minister of God, a minister of Christ. Uh, one of Fox's early openings was that being raised up or educated at Cambridge or Oxford did not make someone a minister of Jesus Christ. The only true Christian ministry was that which was under a direct leading of the Holy Spirit that was directly and immediately inspired by God, Christ, and the Spirit. So that determines the nature of early Quaker worship. Instead of following preset rituals or appointing one person as being the pastor or priest of a congregation, early Quaker worship consists of people gathering together and waiting in silence, confident that if God has a message for this gathered meeting of friends and friendly type of people, that God will inspire someone to speak. On the other hand, it's entirely possible that it might be the will of God that this group of people should simply sit in silence for an hour or two, drawn away from the distractions of the world, focused on the light within them, and that can be just as important an experience as hearing preaching. Uh, all indications are, though, that early Quaker meetings were usually not silent that someone, sometimes several people, would be moved to speak. 
And this is another one of the radical features of early Quakerism, because Friends believe that women have just as much right to speak and preach and pray in meetings for worship, to speak publicly as men do. And this is one of the things that marked Quakers as being almost unimaginably radical in the eyes of their non-Quaker neighbors. There was a saying in the 1640s and 1650s, when women preach and butchers pray, the devils in hell make holiday. So there were a lot of features of the early Quaker movement uh, to drive more conservative established churches absolutely crazy. Right. And I so if, if you're familiar with the religious circumstances of the 1600s in the audience, and you'll know that everything Dr. Ham's describing is very different from, say, uh, traditional Catholicism, mainline Protestantism, or even puritanical sects where, you know, even in mainline Protestantism, there is this doctrine of the priesthood of all believers, but there are you know, established ministers who wield authority over their uh, communities. And so uh, one thing I want to ask before we jump to the, the broader context they're living in is one, uh, so there's a stereotype about the whole quaking business, and there's a later American group, the Shakers, um, as well. One, I guess, is there any, was there anything about Quaker practice that would resemble what was being described, or is that literally just you know, a stereotype made up by people at the time. And then once we get to that, maybe we can talk about, okay, how is the rest of society treating these new Quakers? Mm -hmm. Well, most of the accounts we have of extreme physical manifestations come from non-Quakers who are writing critical accounts. On the other hand, we do have accounts by Quakers who recorded instances when they would be so overcome by the spirit that they might cry aloud or faint dead away. So friends would never have denied that um, there might be instances of quaking in their meetings for worship, but it was no by no means an expectation Right. or a requirement. One other thing I might say about early Quaker uh, meetings for worship is that while there was no established priesthood, there was never one person appointed as being the pastor, friends did recognize that there were some people who had a particular gift for speaking in the ministry or preaching. And uh, those friends were recognized by being given the title or recognition of being called public friends. And George Fox would be a good example of that because he had a gift for speaking or preaching in public. Right, <laughs> which is why he's so famous within Quakerism. And you're, you're in any movement, you're going to have to have some kind of leadership. Uh, but I'm, I'm wondering... Well, let's, let's point to it now. So what impact does uh, the Friends movement have in early English, you know, in their English context? And then what kind of reaction are they going to get from society? Well, certainly it was a rapidly growing movement. 
Quakerism doesn't exist in 1645. By 1660, we estimate that there are probably between 50,000 and 100,000 Quakers in England, Ireland, Wales, and Scotland, the overwhelming majority of them in England. So that's one to two percent of the population. Uh, certainly nothing approaching a majority, but an impressive rate of growth by any standard. Uh, and in fact, this is a movement that basically didn't exist outside of a few communities in Northern England as late as 1652, but after that it explodes into the rest of the British Isles. Quaker theology is heretical in the eyes of almost all of its contemporaries, but what really seems to have driven a lot of non-Quakers crazy were Quaker social practices. Uh, ideas about the nature of the larger society that were very much at odds from the expectations of almost everybody else in England in the 1650s. One Quaker practice that annoyed people, especially in the upper classes, the aristocracy, the gentry, was Quaker refusal to use idols and to engage in the habits of deference that marks someone as being polite or civil. Quakers believe that using titles like my lord or my lady, your honor, your excellency, simply puffed up human vanity. And so friends refused to use them, no matter who it was that they were addressing. Uh, Quakers addressed other people simply as friend or by their full name. Closely related to this was the Quaker plain language of insisting on addressing all people as thee or thou or thy. Now, this is rooted in 17th century English grammar. Uh, just about everybody today has forgotten that originally thee and thou were the singular forms of you, like I and we, or she and they. Uh, so in 17th century England, generally, if one were addressing another individual, one would address that individual as thee or thou. There is, however, a significant exception to that rule. If one is addressing a superior, one higher in the social hierarchy, or one to whom deference or respect is due, like one's mother or father, then the word you would be used even to a single individual. Uh, to address one's mother or father as thee or thou was the height of disrespect sort of like calling them by their first names. Uh, Thomas L. Wood, who was a convert to Quakerism in the 1660s, recorded that his father nearly beat him to death because he insisted on addressing his father as thee and 
though. So these Quaker practices are seen as uh, disrespectful, as socially subversive, as upsetting the natural order of society. Quakers also were great believers in plainness. They believe that unnecessary ornamentation of any kind, whether it's in their homes or in their dress, again, uh, serves only to puff up human vanity, and that is always a dangerous thing. So friends become known uh, for their plain way of dressing. All of these things friends would have justified as required by the Bible or as a way of avoiding sin. But they give friends a reputation for social radicalism that probably played at least some part in the restoration of the English monarchy in 1660. Uh, the monarchy had been overthrown in 1649. For 11 years, England was a republic. But uh, King Charles II is restored to the throne in 1660. And one of the fears or tensions that played a role in that restoration was this perception that Quakerism was rapidly growing and that it was a threat to social stability. Right. And so... As you mentioned, the levelers and the diggers, which are the and the fifth monarchist, which, you know, I think the levelers were the ones who believed property should be held in common. The diggers thought land ownership was a problem, uh, just cursorily touching those. But so all these are challenging all forms of kind of social hierarchy. There's a reaction, the, re the restoration of the monarchy, and now there's sort of a crackdown on all of these movements, including, I, I think, Puritanism as well. And yes. so... And, yeah, and it's probably significant that the best-known leveler in England in the late 1640s and early 18, 1650s was Gerard Winstanley. Uh, or excuse me, I'm sorry, did I say digger or leveler? Uh, Winstanley, <laughs> okay. best-known digger uh, in England. The best-known leveler in England in the 1640s and 1650s is John Lilbert. By 1660, both of them have become Quakers. Oh, so, I see. <laughs> for a lot of observers, there seems to be a natural progression here that is not comforting. Right. And so if we're drawing a spectrum on, on one extreme, we have Catholicism. Then we sort of have the Church of England. Then Puritans who want to make the mainline church more directly evangelical. But even outside of those, you have dissenters or of various kinds, and then Quakerism is, I guess, the least hierarchical on that spectrum. And so in that in that environment, okay, Charles is back. Um, and even before then, Puritans were having trouble under Charles I. So what's going to cause uh, the Quakers to come to America, which is where we join them today? Right. When the monarchy is restored in 1660, that also means the restoration of the established Church of England. Uh, the new parliament that comes into power along with Charles is dominated by vengeful royalists who equate religious dissent with political sedition. So in between 1661 and 1665, you have a series of laws passed 
basically to outlaw religious dissent of any kind in England. Uh, among other things, it becomes illegal for five or more unrelated people to meet for any kind of religious worship outside of the established Church of England. Uh, in 1664, there's even a law passed by Parliament that is specifically aimed at Quakers. The result is that in the 1660s and 1670s, uh, probably the overwhelming majority of adult Quakers in England were in trouble with the law at some time. Uh, they were hauled into court for holding Quaker meetings for worship, or when they got into court, they could get into trouble because Quaker men would not remove their hats in the presence of a judge. That served only to pop up uh, human vanity, which was, of course, undesirable. Quakers also had another peculiarity that caused legal problems for them. They refused to take legal oaths. Uh, they justified this partly by Christ's injunction, swear not at all, partly because Quakers argued that a legal oath implied that you could be trusted to tell the truth only under certain circumstances, and Christians should always speak the truth. Uh, therefore, if you wanted to get a Quaker into trouble, even if you couldn't apprehend him holding an illegal Quaker meeting for worship, all you had to do was haul him into court and demand that he take an oath of allegiance to the king. Uh, the Quaker would protest that he was certainly loyal to King Charles, but as a matter of conscience, he could not take an oath. So the majority of Quakers in England in the 1660s, 1670s, early 1680s, uh, probably experienced fine or imprisonment or both simply because of their beliefs. And thus, it's not surprising that by uh, really the mid-1670s, Quakers are beginning to look toward North America as a possible refuge from persecution. A group of Quaker investors uh, purchased an interest in what would become the colony of New Jersey as early as 1675. But of course, the best known Quaker colony in North America is going to be Pennsylvania, which is the project of a Quaker convert, a convinced friend, as uh, friends would have called him, named William Penn. Now, when William Penn, who was born in 1644 into an aristocratic family, his father was an admiral in the English Navy, when William Penn publicly converted to Quakerism in the mid-1660s, uh, it was a source of consternation among the upper classes. I mean, to have a comparable situation today to having William Penn of the aristocratic Penn family becoming a Quaker, imagine if Ivanka Trump announced that she was going to become an Amish woman and go live on a farm in Pennsylvania that doesn't have electricity. That's how much of a sensation it is when young William Penn becomes a Quaker. Nevertheless, he maintains his uh, 
ties with uh, the aristocracy and even with King Charles II. Uh, Charles apparently found young William amusing because of his Quaker peculiarities. And so in 1681, uh, young William Penn proposes a deal to King Charles. King Charles, the merry monarch, uh, is always in debt to uh, fund his various pleasures and pastimes. And among other things, he owes 11,000 pounds. That would be several million dollars in uh, current purchasing power to the Penn family. So William Penn proposes a deal. Uh, the Penn family will forgive that debt to the king if the king will give William Penn a grant of land in North America, uh, specifically a tract of land between the colonies of New York and Maryland that was not claimed by any other Englishman. The king agrees to that. William Penn wanted to call it Sylvania, which is uh, Latin for forest or woodland. Uh, King Charles's uh, condition is that it must be called Pennsylvania in honor of the Admiral, uh, the Quaker William Penn's father. Mm. So a little bit of trivia here. Uh, Pennsylvania was not actually named for William Penn. The Quaker was named for his father, the Admiral. I did not know that. I was perpetuating that myth in my classroom. <laughs> um, so he and I am aware that, um, you know, because certain Quakers get into trouble with the New England Puritans. And I believe there's even Quaker settlements in the Carolinas at certain points. Um, but is, is the bulk of Quaker settlement in the middle colonies? Well, Quakerism in North America basically comes from two streams. There is significant Quaker immigration beginning in the 1670s to the middle colonies. New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Delaware, all have significant Quaker presences. By that time, however, uh, there are also significant numbers of Quakers in other English colonies in North America, uh, in New Hampshire, to some extent in Massachusetts, to a large degree in Rhode Island, on Long Island in the New York colony, uh, in the Chesapeake, in Maryland and Virginia, and some Quakers in the extreme northeastern part of what is now North Carolina, a few in South Carolina as well. And the overwhelming majority of Quakers in those places were colonists who had already arrived there from England and had been converted by traveling public friends who, uh, beginning around 1655, 1656, begin spreading out into English colonies. Uh, there's also a significant Quaker presence on the island of Barbados by the 1670s. And in almost all cases, these are not English immigrants coming into these colonies. These are people who were already there and who were converted to Quakerism. In many cases, they face persecution, just as they would have back in England. In Boston, for example, you have a case of three Quaker men and a Quaker woman, Mary Dyer, who are actually hanged because they are Quakers who have been banished and persist in returning. 
the largest Quaker presence in New England is naturally in Rhode Island, which of course was the one New England colony which was founded on religious toleration. Roger Williams. Roger Williams, who uh, did not like Quakers at all. He often engaged in theological debates with them, but because he believes in religious toleration, uh, he tolerates them. So if we can touch on that real quick, because there is a tendency, and, and you've addressed it a little bit with early Quakers definitely believing in damnation. There's a tendency because a lot of the ideas sound nice and and friendly right today. So when we talk about Roger Williams, we're like, oh, he was in favor of religious freedom. That will cause a lot of people to think, oh, so he did. maybe he didn't take these beliefs very seriously. But obviously they did. Uh, and so what, I, I guess, uh, what is the, Quaker or friend relationship to the Bible and scripture at this time or specific religious beliefs? Do they have like any kind of, I know there's not maybe a written creed, Mm -hmm. but is there a formal body of beliefs in any way? Um, Friends tended to avoid writing creedal statements, partly because they thought that it was impossible for human language fully to capture what true Christianity was. True Christianity is something to be lived. That doesn't preclude them from time to time from issuing statements of belief about particular issues. Um, Certainly, friends are careful readers of the Bible. Uh, It was said of George Fox by William Penn that if somehow all of the Bibles in the world had been destroyed, that you could reconstruct the Bible from George Fox's memory. He knew it so well. And if you look at um, early Quaker writings, and there are hundreds of them uh, before 1700, if you look at the accounts we have of early Quaker preaching, it is full of scriptural allusion and imagery. Certainly, uh, friends were careful readers of the Bible. Nevertheless, they refused to refer to the Bible as the Word of God. Uh, They said that the Bible itself said that Christ was the Word of God, and that it would be almost blasphemous to say that Christ had become a book. Uh, and that's it's, it's so difficult uh, even today to sum up what Quakerism is to someone existing more comfortably in a mainstream tradition, because obviously they are Christians, but their way of approaching it is is radically different than most established bodies. And you can see why, especially in a world where, you know, you have these very established church traditions or in a place like New England, where the church and the government are pretty much hand in glove any kind of redefinition of the system or saying, well, there's not a formal creed. It's it's not the word of uh, God. Christ is the word of God, and we are followers in that way. It's just, it turns it all, I guess, upside down for a lot of people. It does, and uh, Puritans, Anglicans, uh, a variety of critics of Quakerism see in that Quaker indefiniteness 
or refusal to accept orthodox theology, the potential for all sorts of pestilential heresies to break out. Uh, nevertheless, even when Quakers were in power in colonies like New Jersey or Pennsylvania, they refused to set boundaries on religious belief. Uh, William Penn saw Pennsylvania as what he once called a holy experiment. It could be a peaceable kingdom where believers of all types live together harmoniously in a government that would be based on religious toleration for all people. Uh, the one bound that Penn set on religious belief in Pennsylvania was that anyone who believed in one God would be welcome there. So that means the Protestants of all types uh, find refuge in Pennsylvania. Uh, some of the earliest Roman Catholic churches in British North America are in Pennsylvania. Uh, Jews are in Philadelphia early in the 18th century. Uh, and there's no reason to think that Muslims would not have been at least tolerated there, although we don't have any accounts of them being right. uh, in the 18th century. And that is probably a significant reason why in the 18th century, Pennsylvania is arguably the most prosperous and certainly the most rapidly growing of all of the English colonies in North America. Well, and, and would you say, I guess so we can uh, move the story along a little bit, even though Quakers will, as immigration occurs and population growth, as a number of the population will, on a relative sense, grow smaller, I think it's fair to say, yeah. uh, the society that they set up in, say, Pennsylvania or New Jersey, I mean, obviously, uh, most of the early revolutionary documents are drafted in Philadelphia, the Second Continental Congress. Uh so what, if we could even sum up the 18th century with sort of a bow, what impact do you see of Quaker society and Quaker values impacting kind of the age of the American Revolution? It's complicated. On the one hand, by the early 18th century, by the year 1700, Quakerism has lost most of its evangelical uh, zeal and aggressiveness. By the beginning of the 18th century, you've entered a period of what Quaker historians refer to as the era of quietism, where Quakers on both sides of the Atlantic become much more inward looking. They become focused on preserving inward purity. And one result of that is that by the mid-18th century, you have a fairly elaborate uh, code of Quaker conduct and rules being created that's referred to as the discipline. Uh, and it's designed to set a kind of hedge or fence around friends to protect them from the corruptions of the larger world. So by the mid uh, 18th century, for example, it's become a hard and fast rule that Quakers can marry only within the group. If you marry a non-Quaker and refuse to apologize for that, 
uh, you will lose your membership. So by the era of the American Revolution, you would have found uh, in just about any place where you have a significant number of Quakers like Pennsylvania or New Jersey, a significant number of ex-Quakers as well, people who for whatever reason have lost their membership. On the other hand, by the mid-18th century, uh, Quakers have come to see it as their duty to point out shortcomings in the larger society, particularly those that victimize groups like Native Americans, uh, American Indians, or enslaved people. So by the time of the American Revolution, for example, Quakers have become probably the leading advocates of the rights of Native Americans in North America. Uh, it's become Quaker practice that whenever treaty negotiations are taking place between colonial governments and Indian tribes, uh, particularly in the middle colonies, Quakers will try to attend to make sure that Native American rights are observed that what is put into the written documents is accurately reflected by the verbal negotiations that have taken place. Do you think part of that emphasis is due to their own experience with basically being kind of a persecuted minority in a lot of cases, or well, it's not mutually exclusive, but also kind of with their general attitude towards human fellowship? I think that uh, both of those things would be part of it. I think that it's also a case where friends feel called to testify to the truth. And anytime these sorts of negotiations are going on, you want to make sure that truthfulness is always central to them. By the time of the American Revolution, again, on both sides of the Atlantic, Quakers have become leaders in the developing anti-slavery movement. Um, in the 17th century and until the mid-18th century, some Quakers had been enslavers, particularly uh, on Barbados or in southern colonies like Virginia or Maryland or the Carolinas. But even in the north, in the Delaware Valley, on Long Island, in New England, you would have found some Quakers who had owned slaves. Almost from the beginnings of Quakerism, however, you had some Quakers who had doubts about the practice of enslavement. Uh, George Fox himself did, although he never outright condemned the practice of human slavery. The first anti-slavery statement by any group in North America came from Quakers in Georgetown, Pennsylvania in 1688. Uh, one of the most uh, notable anti-slavery figures on either side of the Atlantic in the 1720s and 1730s was a Philadelphia friend named Benjamin Lay. Uh, he was a dwarf who published a book uh, saying that no Christian could be an enslaver. And to try to drive home the, uh, what the experience of enslavement was like for slaves, what slave 
parents experienced when they were separated from their children. Lay actually, in a couple of cases, kidnapped the children of Quaker enslavers just overnight, not harming them in any way, but to give the parents the experience of what enslaved parents felt. Uh, that was just too radical for friends. They uh, ended up disowning Benjamin Lay. <laughs> I can imagine. That's and funny. He went, uh, he went to live on a, in a cave uh, in Abington outside of Philadelphia. That, little uh, Diogenes. Uh, incidentally, the cave was on the farm of uh, my great uncle, eight generations removed, a Quaker named John, John Phipps, who uh, apparently was uh, sympathetic to uh, <laughs> sorry Benjamin. that's that's hard so you said john lay was a he was a dwarf benjamin lay ben, sorry benjamin lay yes. uh that's that's an interesting image to imagine uh okay yes. well so the quakers kind of going into the late 18th century coming into the 19th are kind of a in many ways kind of a moral witness to what's going on in the broader u.s story but are also that's how they see themselves okay and because of this quietest period where evangelization has basically cooled off, they're not really a vastly growing portion of the population, but are maybe maintaining numbers. Uh, how, okay, so in the period of westward expansion uh, mm -hmm. in the early 1800s, you know, we also get the Second Great Awakening. Uh, as America's expanding, dealing with sectionalism, all this stuff, where are the Quakers? What are they doing? doing and and i guess how do they what's going on with quakers basically right well quakers are certainly part of the westward movement uh after the american revolution there is significant quaker uh immigration from new england into upstate new york uh from the delaware valley into western pennsylvania and then into eastern ohio and this is mainly following migration patterns you see in the larger American society. You know, upstate New York, for example, is full of uh, people looking for fertile land coming out of New Hampshire or Connecticut or Massachusetts or Rhode Island. It's when you get to the Southern Quaker uh, populations in Virginia and the Carolinas and Georgia especially North Carolina, that you find a somewhat different pattern. By the time of the American Revolution, in part because of friends moving south out of the Delaware Valley into first Virginia and then to North Carolina, uh, North Carolina probably ranks second or third of all of the uh, British colonies in North America in terms of its Quaker population. And after the American Revolution, you have a few Quakers from the Carolinas and Virginia who move into East Tennessee. Generally, though, when Quakers leave the slave states, the South, particularly North Carolina, they don't move due west. They don't move into Kentucky or Alabama or Mississippi. Instead, when they move west, they move north and west, over the Ohio River into first Ohio, later Indiana, Illinois, and Michigan. And they do this because of slavery. Under the Northwest Ordinance of 1787, 
slavery is forever banned on the lands north of the Ohio River. Uh, in contrast, it's tolerated indeed encouraged in the lands uh, south of the Ohio River between the Appalachian Mountains and the Mississippi River. So that explains why Quakers, when they move west, don't move into new slave states. So when they're moving free soil. Do most um so my in my own research, I've encountered sort of Quaker communities in Ohio and Iowa much yes. later in the century. Uh but are and this is kind of curious, were many Americans are familiar with people like the Amish or Mennonites to an extent who are obviously different than Quake, different in Quakers in a lot of ways, but are Quakers in the 1800s or even 1700s, are they mostly a rural people? Do they live in city? What are, how do they live their lives? Uh, Quakers in 1800 are an overwhelmingly rural people, as of course uh, the overwhelming right. majority of Americans were at that time. Uh, certainly you would have found some Quaker families in cities like uh, New Bedford or Providence, Rhode Island or New York City, uh, especially Philadelphia. By 1800, there's a growing Quaker population in Baltimore as well. But the overwhelming majority of friends are rural. They're farming people. And that explains migration west. Uh, generally, Quaker families aspire to acquiring enough land to be able to settle their children on farms around them. And since Quaker families routinely have eight or 10 or 12 children, that means there's always uh, a search for new and fertile land. Uh, it probably says something that as late as 1860, if you look at Ohio or Indiana, uh, you would have found very few Quakers living in uh, cities. There's some in Cincinnati, some in Richmond, Indiana, a growing city that was founded by Quakers. But it tells you something that in 1860, Indiana, which probably has by 1860 a lar as large a Quaker population as Pennsylvania had by then, there is only one Quaker congregation existing in any county seat town in the state of Indiana. Uh, really until the early 20th century, uh, Quakers are an overwhelming world farming people. Well, I, I think you see that a lot with sort of the general uh, Anglo-Yankee population as they migrated westward they're taking up a lot of the farmland and then gradually when urbanization kicks in and farming is less of a way of life, you see a lot of migration to the cities. Yes. I, I'm wondering, um, so the, the 1800s is a period of uh, really several religious revivals and mainline Protestantism sees a transformation, you know, from the puritanical uh, monergistic view, God chooses you for salvation to the sort of Charles Finney, emphasis on you choose salvation, you say yes. Um, and then there's, you know, the blossoming of Methodism and Baptists and, and all kinds of things in the wider American situation. Um, theologically, or just in their beliefs, um, how do Quakers experience the 1800s? Are there, do they go along with these currents? Are there divisions in Quakerism? You know, so how do we get from quietism to uh, various different attitudes in Quakerism? Uh, again, it's complicated. 
If you look at Quakerism in the first third of the 19th century up to about 1830, you would have seen two emerging divergent strands. One of those strands found its leader in a Quaker minister, recorded minister, public friend from Long Island named Elias Hicks, who saw himself as being very much a traditional Quaker. And when Elias Hicks looked at the Quaker world around him in the early 19th century, he was disturbed because he thought that Quakers were becoming too much influenced by the larger world. Uh, that was partly economics. They were doing business with non-Quakers. Uh, Elias Hicks was also disturbed because a lot of Quakers with good intentions were joining non-Quakers in organizations like anti-slavery societies or educational societies or temperance societies or poor relief or Sunday schools. Uh, no question about the good intentions here. But nevertheless, Hicks argues that uh, when Quakers join with non-Quakers, they risk taking up some of their beliefs. And Hicks believes that by the 1820s, you're seeing signs of Methodism, Presbyterianism, Episcopalianism seeping into Quakerism. And as a result of that, we need a reformation. Quakerism needs to be purified of these outside contaminations. We need to get back to the good old ways. Uh, friends who think like Elias Hicks eventually become known as Hicksite friends, although that's never the name that they use for themselves. They just right. regard themselves as being friends or Quakers. Opposed to Elias Hicks is ultimately the majority of American Quakers who either don't see anything wrong with joining with other people, other Christians in good works, who don't believe that that is inherently a dangerous thing, or who, when they look at Elias Hicks, see other ideas in his writings and preachings that they find dangerous. And certainly you can make an argument that Elias Hicks is departing from at least some older Quaker uh, teachings and traditions in important ways. Uh, for example, Elias Hicks would certainly agree with early friends that the Bible is not the ultimate rule in religious authority. The ultimate rule in religious authority is the Holy Spirit. But Elias Hicks goes beyond that to argue that non-Quakers have used the Bible to justify unchristian practices like slavery or warfare so much that Elias Hicks publicly says from time to time that he thinks that it might have been better 
for Christianity if the Bible had never been written. That it has been so corruptly. I'm sure that landed well at uh, 1800s America. Well, uh, there are some Quakers who think Elias is right about that. Right. Other Quakers who are just horrified that, you know, that is taking the idea of the leadership of the spirit too far. That to them sounds like an atheist uh, along the lines of Tom Paine. Similarly, Elias Hicks's Christology is horrifying in the eyes of a lot of friends. Now, Hicks was not a systematic theologian. From time to time, he seems to have said different things to different people. Generally, though, Elias Hicks teaches and writes that Jesus was not the result of a virgin birth. He was not born the Son of God. Instead, the man Jesus became the Christ the Son of God, because he was the only human being who has ever been perfectly obedient to the light within him. That's what makes him the Savior of humanity. That's what makes him the Christ. And you can find some early friends, some 18th century friends, who at least Apply a Christology like this. There are other Quakers, however, for whom, again, the virgin birth is very clearly taught in Scripture. To depart from that is departing from true Christianity, true Quakerism. So the result is that by 1830, you have had a breakup of American Quakerism. Those who see Elias Hicks as a great Quaker leader who agree with his call for reformation uh, separate from the friends who are terrified by Elias Hicks and who generally are more open to uh, influences from the larger society. Uh, in the United States and Canada, roughly about a third of all American Quakers identify with the Hicksites about two-thirds with the critics of Hicks who become known as Orthodox friends. Okay, and so would it be fair to say that the main body, the Orthodox friends, are moving in a direction that is more friendly to, to I guess, mainstream Protestantism, and that they're sticking with some baseline, what are, you know, Trinitarian Christian views of the virgin birth and Christ as sort of the savior of mankind in a traditional sense versus he's he's kind of an enlightened teacher who first attained in this holy state and we can follow him in that example. So I guess amongst the Orthodox friends, um, where do they where do they go uh, as we kind of move towards the late 1800s? And is Hicks the only uh, schism, if you will, or are there other ruptures. Right. Well, in 1830, the one thing that unites Orthodox friends is opposition to Elias Hicks. And beginning in the 1830s and continuing on to the 1840s and 1850s, there is a split or schism among Orthodox friends into groups who become known as Wilburites and Gurneyites. 
The Gurneyites take their name from an English Quaker minister named Joseph John Gurney, who is very much a supporter of Quakers working with non-Quakers in good causes, uh, whether that be uh, humanitarian reforms like the abolition of slavery or temperance societies or prison reform. Joseph John Gurney's uh, sister, Elizabeth Fry, uh, another Quaker minister, is probably the leading prison reformer in the Anglo-American world before 1850. Uh, if you believe that it's a good thing for Quakers to work with non-Quakers and good causes, then Joseph John Gurney is your ideal. Gurney, however, also begins to move Quakerism in a more openly evangelical direction in certain things that he emphasizes in his preaching and writing. Gurney, for example, in comparing the weight that should be given to the Bible with the weight of direct revelation and the inward light, gives more weight to the Bible. He says that the light that is given by the Bible compared with the inward light is like comparing the light of the noonday sun with the light given by the moon. They're both sources of light, but the Bible gives you far more light. And Gurney also begins to emphasize among friends the experience of a definite new birth where you know that as a result of your faith in Christ, that you have been accepted by God. And this is a break with quietistic practices, which emphasize a sort of gradual growth into holiness, and which looked on the idea of one experience of being born again, guaranteeing you salvation, as spurious. The majority of friends in North America, the overwhelming majority of friends in the British Isles, uh, gradually moved toward Gurney's position. But there are some conservative Orthodox friends, especially in North America, who see Gurney's teachings as innovation. They are skeptical of forming ties, even with good intentions with non-Quakers, and they believe that Gurney's critique of the inward light and emphasis on a single uh, experience of the new birth are a break with traditional Quakerism. They find their most articulate spokesman in a Rhode Island Quaker minister named John Wilbur. And so by the 1850s, you have among uh, Orthodox friends, clear Wilburite and Gurneyite parties, and this leads to a new round of schisms. And so um, I guess we're dealing with a massive subject, and I want to be respectful of your time. So as we have Wilburites and Gurneyites, and so my understanding is the Gurneyites are moving in a direction kind of like mainline Protestantism in a way, in that they're going closer to the Bible, away from the emphasis on the Holy Spirit or inner light, not denying it, but emphasis on the Bible. 
And then the Wilburites are more of a reaction against that. And they have more of a traditional emphasis on the inner light, but not so far as, say, um, the Hicksites. And so, okay. And so I think it's fair to say that as we come into the late 19th century, enter the 20th century, we experience kind of a large secularization of American society, very gradual. I'm summing up, you know, a hundred years of change. Um, So in that environment, where does Quakerism go between the Gurneyites and the Wilburites and the Hicksites and also including, you know, uh, you know, Herbert Hoover, for instance, I'm just naming famous Quakers. Um, Herbert Hoover, I don't know if he was a practicing Quaker or if he was the descendant. And then similar for Richard Nixon. Um, I don't know that Richard Nixon lived Quaker principles in his life. Uh, But so where does Quakerism go in the 20th century? All right. If you looked at the Quaker world in the year 1900, you would have seen three, maybe four definite streams. The spiritual descendants of the Hicksite friends of the 1820s and 1830s are still uh, numerous in North America, probably about a fifth of all American Quakers, especially strong on the East Coast. Uh, And by that time, by 1900, they're coming to call themselves uh, Friends General Conference. By 1900, they are articulately and self-consciously religious liberals. Uh, They see themselves as Christians, but they feel, if anything, an affinity for Unitarianism. And so Hicksite friends are active in a variety of liberal religious groups, uh, you know, most often with Unitarians and Universalists. The second stream by the early 20th century calls itself conservative Quakerism. And these are mainly the descendants of the Wilburites of the 1830s and 1840s. These are the friends who are most likely to still hold to wearing plain dress, to using the plain language of thee and thy. Uh, They are the ones who place the greatest emphasis on remaining self-consciously separate from the larger world. And uh, at least some Wilburite friends, especially the largest groups in uh, Philadelphia or in Eastern Ohio, would have insisted that they were the only real Quakers left in the world. They looked on uh, all other groups of friends as being spurious, as not really deserving the name of Quaker. The overwhelming majority of American friends, uh, probably in the neighborhood of two-thirds to three-quarters of American friends in the year 1900, come out of the Gurneyite Orthodox tradition. And the majority of them by 1900 have seen their worship and their lifestyles transform. Uh, They no longer wear the traditional dress of friends. They dress like just about everyone else. They may still use the plain language of thee and thy within their families, but not in the larger world. 
uh, Gurneyites have moved much closer to the larger world. Uh, they dress like the world's people. They no longer use the plain language of the and I. Uh, in most parts of the United States, they're giving up their separate schools and attending public schools. And probably the most dramatic change is that by 1900, most Gurneyite friends, not all, but most, have moved toward a pastoral form of worship that isn't that much different from what you would have found in other Protestant churches. Uh, the Friends meeting in a lot of communities by 1900 is simply called the Friends Church. And it isn't that different from what you would have had in the Methodist or Baptist or Presbyterian church. And, and so at, at that point, is it most common, is it similar to other mainline religious groups where if your parents were Quaker, then you will kind of be a, naturally become a Quaker as well? Like, right. for Quakers instance, have, go ahead. No, go ahead. Quakers have always had a practice of birthright membership where... Okay. If you're born to Quaker parents, you are a full member at birth. Uh, on the other hand, in some parts of the Midwest, particularly, uh, and in North Carolina as well, uh, between 1870 and 1900, uh, some Gurneyite friends had become swept up in a wave of religious revivalism. So that you have, uh, for the first time since the 17th century, significant numbers of converts from non-Quaker backgrounds coming in. Okay. Uh, that, so, and that, that's in the 1930s, you said? Uh, no, between 1870 and oh, 1900. I'm, I'm sorry. Okay, okay. And so, as similar, we see, because I think... Uh, in mainline American Protestantism, that's sort of the era of like Dwight L. Moody and you have exactly. research. Yeah. Okay. So that sort of uh, revivalism is shared in Quakerism there. It is. Um, it's reached in. Okay. By 1900, there's also a fourth stream that numerically is rather small, but in terms of intellectual influence, it's going to have a profound impact on Quakerism. And those are Gurneyite friends, mainly associated with Quaker colleges who are deeply influenced by modernist uh, trends in the larger Protestant world and by uh, critical and scientific study of the Bible. And probably the outstanding exemplar of this would have been uh, a Quaker professor at Haverford College, Rufus Jones, native of Maine, uh, educated at Haverford, uh, and for a year graduate study at Harvard, who becomes a widely known author, uh, probably the single most prominent Quaker in the United States in the early 20th century. And it's probably meaningful that both Herbert Hoover and Richard Nixon come out of the pastoral Gurneyite stream of American Quakerism, one that has pretty much largely come to terms with the larger American culture by the early 20th century. Okay, and so that's what I was thinking where, in the same way that, and I, I'm not saying this as a to question anyone's religious commitments or anything, 
But you'll have, you know, a stream of American presidents where they may practice a certain religion, but you don't that doesn't necessarily have a giant effect on, say, their presidency or politics or what have you. They're just sort of part of this mainstream conversation. Um, Correct. Um, Hoover always considered himself a Quaker. He was born to a Quaker family in Iowa. Um, his parents both died by the time he was 10, and so he then went to live with a Quaker uncle in Oregon. Um, it appears that his meeting dropped him from membership after he moved away, but as an adult, he requested to be received back into membership and considered himself a Quaker until he died. Although he was quite frank that he was a Quaker who liked to dance, liked to drink, and liked to smoke, and <laughs> that set him apart from the Quakers he had known growing up. Uh, likewise, Richard Nixon, uh, on his mother's side of the family, the Millhouses, came from a large, uh, a very long line of Quaker ancestors, and he was a lifelong member of the East Whittier Friends Church in Southern California. Okay, so basically a, a practicing friend, more or less. Well, yes and no. Uh, always a member in good standing with his local congregation, but almost never attended Quaker worship uh, after he was elected vice president. I, okay, that lines up a lot with what we think of Nixon. We'll leave. Yeah. We'll, we'll say that. Certainly, I guess the passive at some point. Um, Okay, and so just to, we're kind of coming into uh, the allotted time slot. And so if if you're an American today trying to understand where Quakers are today in a simple, you know, in simple terms, um, what is it, what's the landscape of present day Quakerism? And, you know, where are the fault lines? Uh, could you just paint us a picture? American Quakers today number somewhere between 80 and 90,000, and they are extraordinarily diverse. They range from the most liberal universalist, chain yourself to the nuclear missile as a peace protest sort of activist. Uh, Quakers who believe that Christianity is or excuse me, that Quakerism is not necessarily Christian or not even necessarily theistic. Uh, to be a Quaker is simply to be a spiritual seeker. Uh, and thus, it is possible in the minds of such friends to be, for example, a Quaker atheist Buddhist or a Jewish atheist Quaker. Right. That's one extreme. At the other extreme, you would find evangelical, even fundamentalist friends who would believe that every word of the Bible was literally inspired, who would look to organizations like the Christian Coalition as uh, manifesting their political and social beliefs, and who undoubtedly voted for Donald Trump in 2016 and 2020. And in between those extremes, you would find friends of almost every other imaginable view. Right. It's almost like asking, uh, what's the landscape of uh, Methodism today? You uh, you have quite a, a spectrum of opinion. 
Um, exactly. Well, that's awesome. I, okay, so one last point on that then. So it's the few, the proud, the 80,000. Uh, and where are these? I mean, uh, obviously people move around. I think I, I knew, no, he went to a Quaker school. So where are the bulk of Quakers located today? The bulk of Quakers today still are in places that historically have large Quaker populations like the Delaware Valley. Ohio, Indiana, Iowa, and Kansas. Although in all of those places, their numbers have diminished uh, since the year 1900. You have seen uh, Quaker growth in some places where evangelical friends have planted churches, especially on the West Coast or in uh, the Southwest. And over the course of the 20th century, you also saw a significant growth of liberal Quaker congregations or meetings in college and university towns. Uh, Today, you would find uh, vibrant Quaker congregations in places like Oberlin, Ohio, or Ann Arbor, Michigan, or Urbana, Illinois. You know, it probably says something that, for example, uh, as far as I know, the only friends meeting in the state of Mississippi is in Oxford, Mississippi. You know, people associated with uh, the University of Mississippi. Got it. Well, that's okay. And so I I guess as a final, uh, is there any push within Quakerism today, broad as it is, uh, for you know, and this is something most churches are experiencing, which is a decline in membership, questions about the future of what it looks like. Uh, is I, I, I sense maybe on the one hand of the most liberal end of the Quaker spectrum, there's sort of an acceptance of a blurring of things and you just sort of join the main current. I don't want to generalize if that's not true. Uh and then maybe on the more traditional end, is is there any emphasis on evangelizing or is it just sort of we're going to steady state what we're doing? Well, you would find among all groups of Quakers a hope of gaining converts. Uh, liberal friends, though, tend to reflexively recoil from anything that suggests evangelism, which, right. you know, they associate with TV preachers. Uh, On the other hand, uh, evangelical friends uh, would be quite open to using just about any means to try to gain additional souls for Christ. And I think you would find just about every type of Quaker who would hope to see their kind of Quakerism grow, even if they're not sure about how to do it. Right. And I probably should mention that there is also an international organization, uh, the Friends World Committee for Consultation, that tries to bring friends together to work on common projects. You know, it doesn't try to unify them all theologically, but it tries to find uh, places where there is common ground. And finally, it should be pointed out that while Quakerism has shrunk in North America in the past century, uh, it has grown dramatically in other parts of the world. Uh, You know, there are hundreds of thousands of Quakers in Kenya now. Uh, Quaker. Really? Yes. (laughs) That's Uh, interesting. 
If you want to envision, quote unquote, a typical Quaker, uh, he or she is a young Black person living in rural Western Kenya. <laughs> I, I, that makes sense from what I've heard of other uh, churches spreading, sometimes in Central and Latin America uh, and a little bit in Africa. But that's that's fascinating, actually. I would I would love to see what that interpretation of simple dress would be, uh, which would I guess wouldn't be the big hat and the. Uh, <laughs> well, that's awesome. Um, well, Doctor Ham, I or Tom, I think I've learned a lot uh, about Quakerism, and that's I definitely hope our, I, I definitely hope our audience has too. Um, it's a massive subject, and of course, we've we've kind of condensed it down. But of course, I would encourage anyone who's interested in learning more about Quakerism, both to read uh, Tom's books, which I'll link below, and uh, also visit some of the websites of the people that we've we've mentioned. Um, so anyhow, thanks, everybody, for stopping on by. And I'd like to thank you, Tom, for giving me your time and your insights for all of this. It's been a really good time, and it's kind of a conversation I hope to uh, keep going generally with different religious groups. So uh, for now, everyone, we'll see you next time and have a good one.